0: So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you heard about it. I don't know how many of us, you know, follow the stock market. But um, we happen to be talking about money today. And um, if you didn't know, uh, the stock market had, like, a really terrible week. So I think something like 3,600 points. Um, It was the worst week since the 2008 financial crisis. So, just to put it in perspective, so you can understand it, I don't have anything invested in the market, so this I'm just you know reading news about it um, But the world's five richest people do you guys know who that is uh, Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, Warren Buffett, and Bernard Arnold um they lost a combined thirty six billion dollars this week, just this week. those five guys lost $36 billion, roughly, I think the U.S. Uh, stock market lost roughly $4 trillion. And you know when we, like, say things like that, when you say a billion dollars or a trillion dollars, it's hard to imagine how much money that is. I always imagine, like, Scrooge McDuck, you know, swimming around in his money bin. Like, but actually, a trillion dollars, <laughs> if you stacked up a trillion dollars vertically— it would be sixty seven thousand eight hundred and sixty six miles that's about it's a little over a quarter of a way to the moon, and so if you stacked up four trillion dollars, actually it would be it would go past the moon. That's how much money was lost in the stock market in the u s stock market this week, just in a week that is nuts like it's kind of unfathomable to to think about. Um, it's a very interesting time for kind of the economy. Uh, Most of us probably feel like we're struggling. Uh, Statistics kind of bear that out. About 60% of Americans live uh, paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Most Americans wouldn't be able to cover an unexpected $1,000 bill. So if you had an emergency... A thousand dollar emergency, most people in America would not be able to come up with that money and so obviously, I already outlined this series, right, and I was gonna talk about giving today, and then this happened to happen this week, and I was thinking about it I was like oh is it is it a you know a good time to like talk about this message and actually, this completely unstable economy, there's probably a recession coming, it's actually the perfect time to talk about giving, which is what we're talking about today. Now, if you're just joining us, you haven't been with us, we're uh, in our Lent series. So Lent is just the 40 days before Good Friday minus Sundays. And typically, it's, uh, historically, it's like a period of time where the church, it's more of a Catholic thing, but it's a period of time where people abstain from things. So they'll be like, I'm going to fast or I'm going to give something up, you know, to kind of, it's almost like a, like a penance, like a repentance type of thing, but we're actually doing the opposite. Uh, Instead of giving up something, we are trying to step into some things. So we're in a series called Give, Pray, Love, three practices that we want to step into during this period of Lent and We're going to be talking about today one of the most powerful ways that we can step into that gospel, and it is this idea of gospel-centered giving. Uh, The question is, why should we aim for that? Like, what is it? We will talk about what it is. Why should we aim for that, and what makes it powerful? And that's what we're going to look at today. So if you guys have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to the book of uh, 2 Corinthians. I have this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we're going to read verses 1 through 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, this is God's word, and it says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means— as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own free will, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that he... That as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Verse 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become Rich. Okay. It's two points today. First point is this Gospel centered giving always comes out of abundance, not need. Gospel centered giving always comes out of abundance, not need. So, what is going on in this passage? Paul is talking to the Corinthian, you know, he's writing this letter to the Corinthian church, and he is talking about something called the Jerusalem collection. So throughout Paul's ministry, Paul spent like 10 years doing this. In the mid-40s A.D., there was a famine in uh, re- aff- affecting the Judean believers, right? So as Paul was going around planting, you know, he planted all these Gentile churches, right? These Greek, these non-Jewish churches— and he would go around, and he would visit them, and he would ask them for money to help the Jewish believers who were suffering because of this famine. And he did this for, for 10 years. He finished in eighty fifty seven, right? He finally completed the collection. He delivered the first one in, in 46, and then he delivered the, the second one in 57. So it took about 11 years, him going around like collecting this this famine relief fund, essentially, because he saw need. And he felt like it was good to ask the churches to help out. So the churches of Macedonia, Achaia, Berea, um Berea, 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 um, Thessalonica, Derby, Asia, Philippi, Lystra, Corinth, so all these churches contributed to this fund. So that's what Paul is talking about. Now, Paul, as he's asking the Corinthian church for these funds, he says, he brings up the Macedonian church. So in verse 2, he says Uh, I want you to know about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So he brings them up, and then he says in verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Now, that's a weird verse, right? Like, you have to read it a couple times. Like, you have to think about it. In a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Those words <laughs> don't all fit together. How is a severe test of affliction creating an abundance of joy? How is extreme poverty overflowing? in a wealth of generosity. That doesn't seem to make sense. If you're in extreme poverty, you cannot overflow unto wealth. Right? That doesn't seem like it makes sense. If you're in severe affliction, it doesn't seem like you can have abundance of joy. So what the heck is Paul talking about? Now, the phrase he uses, like, about their poverty, it it literally means like, down-to-the-depth poverty, like, rock-bottom poverty, right? The Macedonian churches, he, he's bringing them up because they're a testimony of something. The, like, how does extreme poverty overflow unto extreme generosity? How is that possible? Well, it's only possible if money is not their treasure, It's only possible if money is neither their treasure nor the means to their treasure. Because there's no other way that you can be extremely poor and yet feel like you have an abundance. Or you can be in a severe test of affliction and yet feel overjoyed. It says that they gave... It says... They gave according to their means, as, and as I can testify, beyond their means. Do you, have you guys ever heard that phrase, beyond their means, beyond your means? When do we use that phrase, beyond your means? We usually use it to describe somebody who's spending, right? That person is living beyond their means, spending beyond their means. This is what America has a problem with because we have a debt problem. Or just put everything on credit cards, or if anything is, you know, if you can afford it monthly, that means you think you can afford it, right? So you're like, oh, it's like a, you know, it's a million dollars, but it's just like a hundred dollars a month for like fifty years, or you know, it's like that's, and we're like, oh, okay, I can afford it. It's cool. That's how we think, right? And that's how people get in over their heads in debt, right? Because you're living beyond your means. The when the Bible talks about beyond their means, they're not spending beyond their means. They're giving. Beyond their means. Gospel-centered giving always comes out of abundance, even if you're poor. Because when Christ is your treasure, money's a tool. It is not the means of your riches. It's, It's not your riches. It's just a tool. But when money is your treasure, Jesus is just a tool. You know, sometimes I have these conversations with people. You guys know I spend a lot of time at Starbucks, right? And I, I tend to get in these conversations with people. This happened again, by the way. I told you this before, right? But it happened again like a couple weeks ago where this this lady, okay, she literally, this is kind of not super relevant. But this this lady sits, like I'm sitting at my table and I'm working, right? And I have my headphones on. So I'm like sitting on my laptop. I'm working. And this lady sits right next to me like at my the little starbucks table at my table and she puts her hands on my table like this okay and i'm like okay like what, what is this person doing right so i'm just trying to work and she's just like not going away right so i'm like okay so i turn to her and, you know i take off my headphones i'm like i'm like excuse me you know like can i help you and then she goes yeah i want you to fix my phone <laughs> that's literally what she said to me she said yes i want you to fix my phone like i do i do i just look like tech support like i just look like that's my job i'm just like a traveling it person like this happens this literally happens to me once a week at starbucks there's no asians at this starbucks by the way it's a little racist well you know so these these people uh, so she comes to me she's like saying this i'm like no you know but this is how i get into uh, it was this was like Real bad. This lady was seriously, like, that didn't end well. But this is how I get into conversations, right? Now, typically for me, though, I, I like getting into this this one. No, but I like getting into those kinds of conversations because I can talk to people and, you know, I can just, like, share the gospel with them or just get to know them, right? And a lot of times I'll have this conversation, and when I tell them that I'm a pastor, I'll be like, oh, I'm a pastor. And they'll say something like, oh, yeah, I love— and then they'll say the name of a pastor, right? And it's like always a it's like always a prosperity gospel preacher. And they're like, "Oh yeah, I love TD Jakes." Or like, "I love Joel Osteen." Or something. I'm like, "That's cool." <laughs> you know, like and I've learned that that's not the time to dispel them of the notion that, you know, or like, you know, break down the prosperity gospel, but we'll get into these 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 talks about it and it'll be really like sad. You know, eventually we do get around to, you know, what is the gospel. But these people, a lot of these pastors, like the whole thing about why it kind of like, oh, it bothers me. And the notion that they have in their minds of what a pastor is like, sometimes they'll think, oh, are you like rich because you're a pastor? And I'll be like, dude, no. Like, have you ever met a pastor before? Like a regular pastor? Not these dudes who are on TV? Like, dude, no, nobody's rich. But that's what they think, because that's what those prosperity gospels, uh, you know, those prosperity gospel preachers talk about. Like, there's this one video of uh, Jesse Duplantis. He's one of the guys. There's like these three main guys who who uh, asked their congregation for a plane. You know, this is one of the guys who did it. And there's this video clip where he's he's <laughs> there's these these pictures on the wall. It's like an interview for CNN or something. There's these pictures on the wall. They're interviewing him. And he's like, this was this was my first plane. <laughs> you know, like 2004, I got this plane. And he's like talking about it. And he's like, paid in cash. He says, paid it in cash. And I'm like, why are you saying that? Like that's... Like, that's something to be proud of. He's like, I paid for this again. Second plane, you know, God provided all the money, paid for it in cash. He's like, third plane. He's got four planes. (laughs) He had three planes. He's like, this is the one I'm using now. And then the fourth plane is the one I'm going to get. This is the one that, you know, the people are going to fund. They're going to fund this plane for me. And then at the end, because people have this notion, like, I don't think Jesus would do that, right? And he's like, trust me, if Jesus were on earth today, he wouldn't be riding a donkey, you know, he'd be like on this plane. And I'm like, that is nuts. So there's this, there's this, uh, this prosperity gospel um, term. It's like a theological term for them. Theological. It's called seed faith. Right? And so this is when you give money, and that money, it's like a seed. So you put your faith in that money. And that's like sowing a seed of faith. And there's videos of the guys doing this infomercial type thing. There's a, you know, there's a number on the bottom of the screen. And it's like, give $1,000, you know, sow your seed of $1,000. That's what it says. And as he's talking on the screen, he's like, there's somebody out. He goes, la," like that, literally. And then he goes, there's somebody out there. And I'm not. I got nothing against tongues, but this guy's not doing tongues. He's just doing what, I don't know what he's doing. Right, and he just like says whatever. And then he goes, and then he goes, somebody out there has credit card debt. You know, you have credit card debt. And I want you to sow this seed of faith so that God will just wipe out your credit card debt. And in my mind, I'm thinking, like, that's, that's evil. That's evil of this guy. He's trying to take away – this person's already in debt, and he wants to steal their money. And obviously, they ain't going to – God's not going to take away that credit card. Like, this is not God. This is just a rich guy defrauding people. The sad thing is the most of the people that go to those churches, it's like they're poor. They're not educated. Uh, A lot of them, like – like, they're the same kind of demographic that, like, plays the lottery and stuff like that. Like, why do you do that? Because you're desperate. So they're taking advantage of the most desperate and vulnerable people by making them put their hope in money and inflating the false hope of money and the never delivering on the promise. Now, on the other hand, do you guys know what's happening in China right now? So obviously the coronavirus is going on. So earlier this month, seven underground Protestant churches in Beijing raised $10,000 to buy face masks and disinfectants for those in Wuhan. Now, they sent the shipment on February 5th. And do you know what happened after they sent the shipment of $10,000 worth of masks and disinfectant? The leaders of the church were gathered up by the, by the police. And they were questioned. Right, Like, why are you doing this? Because the Chinese government, the past couple of years, they've been really cracking down on the church in China. They really want it to be regulated by the government. And the Chinese government is very suspicious of the church. They see it as people trying to infiltrate society, right, trying to plant this, this seed in people that's going to ruin China. So these people, they give money, and yet they are seen as suspicious. They are questioned by the leaders, Some people have rejected their donations because they don't trust them. Isn't that crazy? See, that is gospel-centered giving. It is giving when you feel like it's in abundance because only then can you They're trying to give money away and the government and some people don't want to accept it and they look down on them. They're suspicious of them for trying to give money. When you treasure Christ, right? when the gospel is at the center of your heart, there's no limit to what you will sacrifice to give because no matter how much money you have or don't have, You will always have treasure. You will always have too much. That is the treasure of knowing Christ. That is what Christ offers us. A treasure undiminished, invaluable. So that's the first point. Gospel-centered giving always comes out of abundance, not need out of our feeling of abundance. Here's a second point. Why gospel-centered giving is important. And I I will talk a little bit about the difference between maybe gospel-centered giving and a law-centered giving. But the second point is this. Gospel-centered giving multiplies grace. Law-centered giving multiplies obligation. Gospel-centered giving multiplies grace grace you know what's really interesting about the prosperity gospel it's actually very legalistic it is very legalistic because they have these set amounts like you have to give and in fact if you get into like a prosperity gospel church and you start like if you give them like 20 bucks then what will happen is they'll send you an envelope it's actually um i think john oliver like did this thing on the on the on these churches one time and so he actually did he sent like 20 bucks right and they sent him back a dollar right with an envelope and what the and it was a letter and the letter was from the pastor you know it's probably written by somebody else and it was like send this dollar back so they send him a dollar but they say send it back also with an additional 37 dollars and then every time – and then he would send it because he just wanted to see what would happen, right? And he kept sending money, and they would send him back, like, another – like, a dollar. But then they would say send it back also with, like, an additional amount of money. So they would, And it would go up and up and up. It would be, like, $200, like, $250, $1,000. It would just continuously ramp up because there's so much pressure on these people. And I've talked to, like, people in these churches – There's like so much pressure. They feel like if I don't give, I don't have faith. This is the proof of my faith. And if I don't give enough, then God's not going to, you know, do for me. But that is a classically legalistic position. It's just using money as the legalism. It is this idea. It's the theology of being able to leverage God. Right? Now, we all kind of are prone to this, this religion, empty religion. If you feel like if I do good enough, if I pray enough, if I read enough, if I give enough, you know, then God becomes indebted to me. He has to give me what I want. We, we won't say those words out loud, but we'll think it in our heads. He's going to make this turn out okay. He's going to get me that place, that thing, that job, that person, you know. He's going to turn it into my favor if I'm just good enough. That is essentially, legalism. It is believing in our own righteousness. I can do it, and I'm going to be good enough, and God's going to have favor on me because of it. Now, what Paul wants to make clear is, verse 8, he says, I say this not as a command. He makes it clear up here, too. Right? They They gave of their own free will, verse 3. He's saying, I didn't compel them. I didn't force them. I didn't say you have to. And even as he's writing this letter to another church, talking about the example of the other church, he's like, I'm not saying you guys have to. This is not a command. He wants to make it clear. He says, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And then he points to Jesus, right? You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's saying that should be ultimately the motivation. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. That's the ultimate irony of the prosperity gospel, right? Because all you need to do is just like, look at Jesus. He didn't live rich. Even when he was on earth. He spent most of his time with poor people. He lived like an outcast. He pretty much lived like paycheck to paycheck. Jesus didn't have retirement set up. He didn't even have a home. He just wandered around doing ministry. And he spent his time with the most broke people. Now, obviously, he was rich. Creator of the universe. That's about as rich as you can possibly get, right? A trillion dollars is nothing compared to creator of the universe, you can just, you know, snap your fingers, make things happen, speak it into existence, literally. He became poor. Now, how did Jesus become poor? Now, obviously, he lived like a poor person even when he was on earth. Isn't that crazy? Like, if you were stepping down from God to human, you would think Jesus at least would be like, a prominent human, right? Like, at least he would be a king or something, or at least wealthy. But no, he's he's born in the most kind of regular, poor way. He lives kind of a regular, poor life, and all of that is not even considering the fact that he stepped down from God to human. Like, do you ever think about that? Like I went, I went, I was playing, bas- I was playing basketball uh, this was like a couple of months ago, right? I'm playing basketball and I, you know, I'll go to the, I'll go to the gym and I'll just like shoot around by myself. And my only, literally my only goal when I go play basketball at this point in my life is to exercise. Like I just want to, I just want to get a, you know, sweat going, like get my heart rate up. Like that's it. I just, I just don't want to. Like that's it. I I barely care about. Like I want to win, obviously, when I'm playing, but I barely care about that. I definitely don't feel like I have anything to prove. You know, like when I was younger, you know, when I was in my 20s or something, I'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I gotta prove like I can play out here with these guys or whatever, right? I gotta dominate, you know, like that's what I would think. But now it's like I don't have that, right? So I'm just I'm just shooting around, and these kids come into the gym, and they're literally like like junior. They. Junior high, they're probably ninth grade at the oldest. Okay, and I'm just shooting around by myself. They're like, hey, do you want to play? So I'm like, okay. Sure, why not, right? It's better exercise. So I go, and I'm like playing with them. And these kids are like, like I'll I'll like, you know, I'll just do whatever. I'll like shoot a shot, and I'll make it, right? And I make the shot, and they're like, oh, oh, he could play. And I'm like thinking in my head like, what are you talking about? Like, like, what are you guys talking about? Like, we we're playing twenty-one, and I'm like, you guys think you could win? Like, like, they're, like they're they're literally like, like I'm like almost two hundred pounds. Like, I could just go like this and just knock the kid on the, you know. But I didn't do that. I'm just play- and they're like, like looking down on me. I'm playing in this game with these junior high kids, which I don't even get because cause I look young, right? So I don't know what they thought I was. I don't know if they thought I was in my twenties or something. Why do, they, why do they think it's weird, you know, that, that I, I can play? Maybe it's just I look that unathletic to them that they are so shocked, you know, that I can do anything here. And I was, like, insulted that these junior high kids would, would treat me like that, right? That's just adult human to junior high human, right? Jesus went from God to human, can you believe that? Like, imagine your dog. Uh, imagine all dogs. Like, there's a cataclysmic event that's going to just destroy all the dogs. Because, you know, we like a lot of us, we like dogs, right? And this scientist comes to you and is like, you are the last hope for the dogs. But to save all the dogs, you have to become a dog. And you become a dog. And you go to your own dog. Like, you're all talking about, like, you have a dog, right? You go to your dog, and you're like, hey, you know, rough. Like, we need to do this because all the dogs are gonna be wiped out. Like, as if that's not bad enough. Your dog is like looking down on you. Like, dude, you're not cool enough to like hang out with me and my friends. Can you imagine that? You cross species-level humility. Like, you're like, okay, I'm going to become a dog to save all the dogs because I love my dog so much. And your own dog that you have known since birth that you cared for, right, that you, like, or you got him out of the kennel, whatever, you saved that dog and the dog looks at you, like, dude, who, who, get out of here. Like, I'm I'm hanging out with my friends, you know, my other What's a what's a group of dogs called? My pack, you know, whatever, right? Like, like this is this is my group. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine how mad you would be? you be like, you stupid dog. <laughs> like I I raised you. Like I feed you every day. I pick up your poop from the ground. This is how much I care about you. And I become like you, and you don't even want to like be friends with me. Like, that's, that is ridiculous. I'm off the rails right now talking about some ridiculous example. And that's not even, that, that doesn't even compare to what Jesus did. Because he knows us better than, than we know our dogs, he knows us better than we know our kids, he knows us better than we know ourselves. He was thinking about us from eternity past. And yet sometimes he wants to come into our lives. Like he has crossed that threshold, became human. That is the humility that, that he did for us. That's the poverty that he took on for us. And sometimes we're just like, I don't know, Jesus, like I'm, I'm kind of busy. You know, I got, I got a lot of things going on in my life. Why did Jesus do that? He did it to make us rich. To make us rich. Because gospel centered giving multiplies grace. Now, what do I mean by that? Now, let me talk quickly about tithing. Okay, uh, so tithing, a tithe is 10%. This is what it means. Right. So the question is, in the church, do you have to give 10% of your income? Now, in the Old Testament, a tithe included uh, seed, fruit, flocks. There were regular tithes where they would give 10% to the Levites. There were other special tithes that they would give throughout the year. There were special offerings that were given. Now, most scholars it's hard to It's hard to pinpoint exactly what percentage Old Testament people actually gave as a part of their their you know their giving, you know but it would probably be closer to twenty percent. Um, in fact, it would most scholars say it would be at least twenty percent, if not more. so you know if you would actually want to uphold the Old Testament tithe, it would be something closer to twenty percent now. There are – I think a tithe, like a 10% giving, is a helpful guideline, but I do not think it's law. I'll, I'll quickly outline the reasons why I don't think it's law. One, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. Two, there are descriptive accounts in the Old Testament about giving 10% like Jacob and Abraham, but those are not prescriptive accounts. They're not commands. Right? Three, the tithe in the Old Testament was tied to national Israel. Because Israel was a country, and so they had to support Levites. Also, if you think about things like taxes, basically, that was kind of like they needed that a whole system for that. Uh, four, there is there are texts where Jesus affirms the tithe. So this is a big one where people say, "Oh, see, Jesus said you should tithe." But Jesus was essentially born under the law, right? Because the new covenant started when Jesus died and resurrected. So he also affirms like offerings, you know, or not like uh, sacrifices, animal sacrifices for example. Obviously, we don't do that after Jesus rose again from the dead. So that's the fourth thing, fifth thing, it's not explicitly stated anywhere in the New Testament post resurrection. So after Jesus resurrects, there is no passage where it says you should give 10% of your income. That's five reasons, right? Here's a sixth and most important reason to me. Law-centered giving creates self-righteousness while gospel-centered giving multiplies grace. Now let's say your best friend gives you a gift. Okay, it's not your birthday or anything. It's just like some random day. Your best friend, maybe it's your, you know, your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, right? They come, they give you a gift. And it's like exactly what you wanted. Right? And then you're like so happy. You know, you open it, it's like, oh wow, it's that thing, whatever it is. And then you say, What's this for? And then they smile at you. And they pull out this piece of paper. And they say, We have an agreement to give each other gifts every year on this day. Remember this random day of the year. Now, how do you feel about that gift? Yeah, it sucks, right? Like you're just like, who cares about this? Now I don't, like maybe you'll still like it, you know, it's a thing, whatever it is. But the notion that it is a gift is just gone, right? It's not anything anymore. It's not valuable in that sense. You're not emotionally connected to it. It's lost its meaning. Now same scenario, give you a gift, random day, it's not your birthday. Instead of saying we've signed an agreement, they say, I love you. I just want you to know that I appreciate you. That feels good, right? Even when I said it just now to you, and I wasn't even saying it to you, you just heard the words. You liked it. You were like, dang, I wish that actually happened to me. I don't even care what the gift is. Like, it would just be a, you know, bookmarkers, and like, here's a bookmark. It's like, what is this for? And you'd probably be like, what is this for? I don't need a no stupid bookmark. And would be like, I just want you to know I love you, and I appreciate you. You'd be like, dude, thank you. <laughs> like, thank you so much for this. See, the first one is, law centered giving. The second one is gospel centered giving. There is a multiplicative joy. Cuz here's the thing, the gift doesn't mean anything until we interact with it. Right? Like if I give Boomy a gift, then we both receive joy. If I buy her flowers, you know, and she takes it and she enjoys it, then we both there is something in that that is created. That, that giving creates something. If I did, Now, if I do it because I feel bad or I did something wrong or, like, you know, I'm trying to prove that I'm a good husband, like, then there isn't that joy there. But if I do it because I feel like I already have enough, like God is enough for me, and I appreciate her, and so I want to give her something, when she receives it, she is happy getting the gift, and I'm happy giving the gift. And that doesn't exist when I just have the gift to myself. Like, if I buy flowers and I just keep it, then it's nothing, right? I don't even like flowers. Like, what am I going to do with it? It doesn't mean anything. But when you give it, this is the power of gospel-centered giving. When you give it, the joy is created. It, it's created there, and it multiplies because we both receive it. The giver receives it. The receiver receives it. And then we are empowered to give more. That's multiplicative joy. That's the power, that is the immense power of gospel-centered giving. Now, you guys know, like, throughout this series, we've been talking about, so I talk about these three things, right? You can step into these three things. You don't have to, obviously. I have already said you don't have to. This is more of a a challenge to step into, to find Christ as treasure, to discover him more as treasure, to follow him more closely. That's it. But I will say it. I will, you know, reiterate these three things. You know, Lent started this past week. I'll say these three things. One, give give 10%. It's only as a guideline and if you can't which is totally possible. That's understandable. You know, maybe you can outline for yourself what that percentage would be. It is good to have a guideline, though. I would say, right? It's not good to just be like, "I'm just gonna give whatever's left over in my account." You know, because that's kind of subordinating Christ. It's putting him at the end. Paul says they, you know, gave to God first and then to us. It is the idea of create like uh, establishing the habit. Of of honoring God with our first fruits. So I would say, you know, try it out. Lent it's about six weeks, right? Try it out. Just every week. Second thing. Pray, pray every day, for one person or family throughout the forty days of Lent. Now some days have already passed. If you haven't started, that I, that's fine. You know, don't don't be legalistic about it. That's okay. Now, the reason I, I want I really want us to say, I'm gonna talk about prayer next week, but the reason I really want us to do this, is because I want you to experience the power of praying consistently for the same thing over a period of time. Like there's power in that. It, that's that is elucidated in scripture. That is something that Jesus says right, persistently, consistently praying. Like, I want you to see what God can do when you just like, hey, God, you just have this. I'm just going to pray about it. I'm just going to pray about it repeatedly for a number of days. Like, I'm going to commit this amount of time, and every single day, I'm going to pray for the same thing. And not just whatever I'm thinking, not just, I mean, and those are all good things, too. We should pray those things, too. But I'm just going to pray for the same thing every day. Show this faithfulness and consistency. And so maybe you don't even know. I, I said pray for one person or one family, right, who who could, who could use Christ in their life. Now, maybe you don't know who that is. And here's what I'd say if you don't know who that is. Pray every day for God to tell you who the person is until you know. Right, just, just pray this every day. God, who do you want me who do you want me to reach, right? What opportunity opportunity am I not seeing right now? And the third thing, love. Let's give, pray, love. Love one person or one family by inviting them into the gospel, right? Real, practical, easy way you can do it, invite them to church on Easter. And and this is, the, this is it. This is the reason. Um, giving money is great. Money is a tangible expression of what we value, right? That's what money is. And so when we can give it to people in the gospel or give it to God, you know, or give it to the church, like, those things are valuable because it shows what, you know, God means to us, what people mean to us. But what Christ offers, what Christ himself offers is not money, right? That's the difference between the real gospel, and the prosperity gospel because Jesus is better than buddy. Like, he offers himself. He offers like the riches that he came and died for. Right? He gave up his riches and became poor like us so that we could become rich like him. The rich like him that he died for and he rose again for. It's not the pitiful riches of like you know, like a Roth IRA or a 401k. You know, it's not it's not the pitiful riches of like sitting on some beach somewhere and taking a picture of your feet with the ocean in the background, right? Like and that's if you do that, that's fine. Just know those aren't the riches. Right? It's fine, it's cool. We can rest, you know, we can we can vacay and do all that stuff. That's fine. But those aren't the riches that Jesus died for. The riches that Jesus died for are far greater than that. It's a far deeper satisfaction than that. It's a far more powerful joy than that. It's the kind where even in extreme poverty, even in severe affliction, you will feel abundant. Abundant. That's the riches that Christ offers us today. That's the riches that God commissions us to offer the people around us. Let's step into that this this Lent. Um Why don't you come it Randy? But I'm gonna and so what we're actually gonna do right now is we're gonna um we're gonna have a time of communion. And so Um You know, communion is just it's one of the essential practices, ordinances of the church that is what we do to remember and celebrate what Christ has done for us, right? What we're talking about today. The body, uh, I'm, excuse me, the bread is representative of the body of Christ. You know, the, his flesh that was torn for us. The, the juice is representative of the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And as we do this, You know, this is a powerful time where we can remember, where we can celebrate, where we can be thankful and grateful uh, to God. And I would just offer, um, you know, this opportunity, if you would like to use this time as you partake of the elements, to commit to this season of Lent, you know, this season of Lent to Christ. right? To knowing him more deeply, to following him more closely, to stepping into faith you know let's if you are you know willing let's use this time for that i would just uh, encourage you if you're if you're not a believer you're kind of unsure where you stand in the faith i would just ask you to abstain from this time uh this is supposed to be a time bed for believers um i would just encourage you though to you know pray on your own maybe meditate and so um, I'm going to read from, I'm going to read here from uh, 1 Corinthians 11 and I'll pray for us and then we can go ahead and, and go back and partake of the elements. Um, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. and When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you so much that for our sake you became poor. materially poor physically poor God even in humanity God you you took on our poverty so that we could become rich like you God not not rich in our accounts God or our balances but rich in our hearts overflowing with joy no matter what is happening around us. God, standing on firm, abundant ground. No matter what we face, these are the riches that are offered to us in you because of you, Jesus, because your body was broken, because your blood was shed in our place. We can take on your righteousness, God. Thank you so much for that. Thank you for this time. We pray that you would give us courage to step in to following you in faith. And we pray, God, that that for those of us who would be willing with this time even be a time where we could um, commit ourselves in faith to that. God, and so as we partake this bread as we drink of the cup would you bless the elements god would you remind us of your love would you allow us to experience your grace and would you empower us by your holy spirit we thank you we love you Lord Jesus we pray